Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. Welcome back. Thank you for your patience as I recovered from a cold. So this recording is coming out about a day later than I normally would record it, and I might need to take breaks during this. So uh, I ask for your uh, patience in advance for that. In the meantime, thank you again for tuning in for listening to this podcast as I read to you from my first novel. Uh, One thing I also did tonight was uh, I'm not quite past that point yet in my normal editing, but I went ahead and edited the next four chapters here that I'm going to read to you tonight. So this is actually a quick once-over edit, and I'll probably re-edit them again as I go through normally. But this will be a little bit less rough than uh, in terms of, you know, like uh, structure than the uh, previous, oh, what are we on here now the previous 18 chapters have been so uh this will be roughly chapters 19 20 and 21 and we'll see where we are time wise at that point and i might throw in another chapter we will see but chapter 19 the last abduction chapter 20 the time between and chapter 21 Excerpt from Transmission Attributed to Chaos. So, before I get into that, my uh, normal little introductory spiel here. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast, uh, Chris Reed's book, is me reading to you chapters from my first novel, Mystery and Deceit, From Earth to Mars. Uh, It is a serial podcast, so as I just said, I'll be reading chapter 19 first tonight, so if you have not yet uh, listened to the other 18 chapters, I was just going back and reading those. You can, reading, listening, about the same thing these days, really. (laughs) What you can do in order to get those is go into your favorite podcast app on your mobile device, your tablet, that sort of thing, into the iTunes store and search for Chris Reed's book, you can also head over to my website, narclaninc.com. That's N-A-R-C-L-A-N-I-N-C.com. I have my social media information out there as well as a link to the MP3s of this podcast. So you can actually grab those directly. They are free out there. A link I will also be getting out on my website is to my Patreon account. It's a way that you can donate money to this podcast, to me, uh, per episode that I put out. So like, for instance, this episode, if you felt it was worth $1, you could pledge $1, $2, $2, you know, th- if you're rich and have nothing else to do with your money, $300, you know, whatever you want. <laughs> if you're able to help, that is fantastic. But I am just putting this podcast out there so you can consume my book in a different way, perhaps a, a more accessible way to you. I know I love to listen to podcasts on my way to work, and home every day, you know, shows like uh, The Nerdist, 
major spoilers podcasts, uh, NPR radio hour, those sorts of things. They're all great podcasts. and There are many more that I have yet to discover. And hopefully you've discovered this one and shared it with somebody else. I would appreciate it if you did that. Anyway, on with the show. Let's get to the first chapter this week. That would be chapter nine, The Last Abduction. We have you surrounded. Let your hostages go. Cooperate and we can work a deal out, the police negotiator said through his megaphone. The only deal we'll consider is the nanite tech for the woman's life, a man's voice yelled back from inside the building. The police negotiator looked at James, empathetic. I can understand this must be hard for you, sir, but we would really appreciate it if you would wait in the command center. Trust me, Lieutenant. You will want me here when the time comes. Can I try talking to him? James asked calmly. I wouldn't advise it, the lieutenant replied. With respect, do you know anything tactically about this situation? Their numbers? Armaments? Armor? I can get you at least some of that if you let me talk to them, James said. The negotiator seemed uneasy about the proposal. It had taken James flashing his security clearance to get him in. Mr. Christopher, I hope you know what you're doing, the lieutenant said, handing James the megaphone. They're learning, James thought. The last one still let us talk to them by phone. Hello? Sir? I'm James... James was interrupted. We know who you are, screamed a voice from inside the building. Don't move, or your life and your wife's are worthless. Look, sir... I, I just want to talk, James said, trembling his voice. I, I just want to know Melinda's all right. James took a step toward the building, but was stopped short by a bullet, which struck the pavement in front of him. James dropped the megaphone. Next shot's your head, the same voice yelled. As he picked up the megaphone, James said, Lieutenant, that was a fifty cal sniper rifle, roof level, our corner of the building. Keep down. The negotiator quickly sent runners to his teams, telling them about the sniper. Not that it mattered. The forces the police had wouldn't contain these mercenaries. They had cut power to four square city blocks, putting an EM blocker up that almost blocked out the sun, and had the best commercial armor on the market today, James's own design. Not even the armor-penetrating rounds of the police would make a dent. James had to have a talk with his delivery company about the security of shipments after this mess was dealt with. Okay, James said, straightening and pretending to fumble with the microphone. Okay, I'll stay where I am, please, his voice quivering. I just want to know that my wife is okay. She is for now. Just shut up and give us the tech. How can I trust she's okay? Can't I just... I, I don't mean to push. Can, can I just see her or hear from her? James pleaded. Unconsciousness doesn't facilitate talking. Good. Melinda was doing her part. Honey, James thought toward her. You okay? When are they going to pick on you for a change? Melinda replied. James had to try hard to repress a smile as they were no doubt watching him. You're just too attractive a target to let go, he thought back. Look, he said, I, I could do what you want, 
if I could, I would. It's not just up to me. And as I'm sure you're aware, my company doesn't deal with hostage takers. He thought to Melinda. Tell us how many of them there are and where they are, babe. To the mercenaries, I can put in a call, but you would have to drop the EM shield. Bull! We know the techs here! The man boomed. So they had a teller. Too bad that piece of tech had made it out of the lab. Four on my floor, three on the roof, three each on the two floors below me, and four in surrounding buildings. Those aren't armored, though, Melinda replied to James mentally. No, they're just eyes, he replied. Out loud, he added, Sir, please, we can work this out? No, the tech now or she dies. You have five minutes to deliver it to us. Have it your way. James mumbled, walking back behind the squad car. We're getting ready to breach, Mr. Christopher, said the negotiator. Don't bother. It won't work, James stated. They have on armor stolen from my company. Even your SWAT team doesn't have anything that would work against it. How did you find that out? The guy didn't tell you anything, the negotiator replied. I recognize his voice from a surveillance tape, James lied. That's definitely him. He has spotters in four buildings around here. Your men should be able to handle those guys. James felt the tugging at the edge of his mind. They were ready. You tell them everything you told me, hun? He asked Melinda. Everything's ready. On you, she replied. Lieutenant, let me handle these guys. This area will be sealed off after this is over, and your entire crew will need to be debriefed. See you on the other side. James stood up, looked toward the building, and said loudly, Have it your way! He sprinted toward the building, hurtling cars as he went. Fifty caliber rounds struck pavement where he had been, his clothes flattened as he seemed to become encased in a skin-tight, transparent suit. He reached the doors as explosives rocked first this corner, then that of the building. We want them alive, he thought to the rest of his team. Doing our best, James came the thought reply from Eric via Melinda. They're dug in really well. James passed three unconscious forms as he leapt up the now empty elevator shaft, jumping off its walls and emerging on the third floor to find Melinda with the barrel of a pistol pressed hard against her head. Stop right there, man. I walk out of here right now or she doesn't. That's simple, the man holding the gun said. What you failed to realize, said James calmly, is first, she walks out of here either way. Second, and for the same reason, I'm not the one you need to worry about. You guys did do better than the last crew, he said as he circled the scene. A lot of improvements this time. Even my own armor. Did you have an inside man at the shipping company? Doesn't matter, the man replied. You're right. Won't happen again. Doing okay, dear, he asked Melinda. Better than not, hun. Getting a little uncomfortable, though, she replied. Want to end this? James asked. Sure. Why not? Melinda reached up and grasped the man's arm, holding the gun. Gah! exclaimed the man, dropping to his knees after releasing both Melinda and his weapon. How? Vexing pain was clear in his voice. As I said, you did better than the last crew. Still a long way from home, though. Andre, you around? Stepping out of the shadows. Yeah, James. 
any of them talk? He asked. One. It was enough. We have all their mission details. Same guys were behind it again, DeAndre replied. Can I dump this guy yet? Melinda asked, still holding the man gently by the arm. Yeah, go for it, James said. Melinda tapped the man on the head, and he fell unconscious to the floor. DeAndre, is the containment team on site yet? Almost, boss. By the way, it was one of our EM blockers, too. Juiced by a cold fusion reactor. That, he looked up at James from the data pad he was holding, wasn't ours. Don't know where it came from yet. Is it stable? James asked. Yeah, you want it back at the lab to analyze? Dontre asked. Take it to the beta site. Don't want to suddenly find out it was a bomb and have our main labs go up, James said. Melinda, can you see that that guy gets taken in for questioning by our people? Sure thing, Melinda replied. See you back home, she added. James watched as she walked away, dropping her nanite shielding and letting her clothes and hair regain their natural bounce and flow. Stop staring, babe, she thought at him. Turning his attention back to the matter at hand, James looked at Dondre. Are we getting that good at dealing with these, or are they just getting easier? Definitely not easier, James. You'd better head down, too, and start talking to the cop in charge here. He'll have questions. As they had predicted, outside groups quickly started targeting vulnerable company heads to try and extort the nanite tech. Thanks to copious amounts of foreplanning, though, they had the response down pat. Thanks to their DOD contracts and contacts, the Core 8 had top security clearances in all matters regarding their research, including hostage situations. While Nara refused to provide it to anyone, even the U.S. DOD, the Nanite Tech had allowed the creation of four more Atmos squads in recent months. Everyone who could know, did know about the Tech, and wanted it. Such was their present danger. Nara itself was well enough monitored and guarded that it was safe. Outside the facility, though, their personnel had been targeted. At first, they had lost a few good scientists in similar fashion. Since then, though, Meng and James had seen to intentionally leaving nanites open for such attempts as the nanite, nanitics, would help protect them if anything went awry. With their new nanite adaptations, it was the safest overall plan. After gaining control over nanitic symbiosis, NAR had been able to subtly alter and add to the nanitic base code. It was quite a process, to be sure. Still, the results were well worth it. All their enhanced abilities were further magnified, refined, and amplified. They even figured out ways to manipulate the nanites into a type of ablative body shield, one that would absorb any impact at the expense of existing nanites. In basic terms, it traded nanites for protection. But as the nanites were intended for self-replication in a host, the impact was generally minimal on the overall nanitic hive symbiote. As such... A gun to an anitic's head was about of as much concern as a banana. Taking a cue from Meng's nanitics, each person's hive mind had been given slight foreknowledge, granted by extra-dimensional manipulation. In this way, not only could the nanites act as a shield, but could do so proactively and seek out harmful events just before they impacted the host body. Both were nanitic traits that were proving extremely useful in the field for Atmo. Having arrived back at the ground level, 
James found the lieutenant in charge. Wardlaw, right? James asked as he approached. Yes, sir, the man replied. Adam, Jessica, and Andre were directing their various Atmo Civ teams, members of Atmo mercenaries who weren't yet nanetics, who hadn't proved themselves yet for such an honor. Most, now, were in the process of field-stripping the hostage-taker's crew and bringing them down to the awaiting police wagons. Sir, Wardlaw said, that was unbelievable. I know, Lieutenant. What just happened here? Wardlaw asked. What you witnessed was the use of highly classified military hardware, James replied. I've never seen armor like that. You were hit twice, once by an RPG. Didn't even phase you. James quickly searched the hive mind and found it replicating nanites. He had been hit. He would have to review the hive mind's history later, analyzing it for impact and reaction data. So I did. As I say, very highly classified, James replied. I could see why, Warlaw said. Now, Lieutenant, you're going to hand in a report on this. My people are still writing that report for you, but we'll have it read, ready shortly. The report is going to expound on the fantastic tactics you and your men used to bring about the capture of most of the hostage-takers. A few, you will report, got away. Adam was overseeing the loading of the ringleaders into an Atmo armored personnel carrier. From the ones you captured, you learned that they were a separatist group unhappy with the way the government is handling continued negotiations between the governments of Russia and Pakistan. As such, they held up here, only blocks from both consulates, in order to make a statement. You and your people set up a NAR-EM blocker to defuse the situation and put these very dangerous individuals at a tactical disadvantage. Same thing for the power outage in the area. Your captain is being likewise briefed on the situation. If you require, I can get you confirmation that this is how things need to have happened. It would come from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and special aid to the president, General Henshaw. But I don't think that'll be necessary. Do you? It was a lot to take in, though the lieutenant did so in stride. No, sir. That won't be necessary. You know, I'd heard rumors of a similar event you just described happening in Palm Beach. Any connection? Wardlaw, as far as I know, this was the first such incident anywhere in the country. If there was even one other, it is a coincidence. That man exiting the building now, James said, pointing at Andre, is in operational control of this scene. He will get you the proper paperwork. I need to accompany a few things back to our facilities. Pleasure meeting you, Wardlaw. Too bad we never met, James said as he shook the man's hand. He turned, walked to the APC, and climbed into the passenger seat beside Adam, saying, as he did so, Bang was right again. You expect less from him, came Adam's reply. No, I'm glad, actually. Keeps more of our people out of harm's way. And at least we know it's coming. The plane ready? We'll drive onto the tarmac and right inside, Adam said. Good. Andre will finish up here. Let's get back to base. It's been a long day, James commented. I bet. You and Melinda get any actual celebrating done on your anniversary? Adam asked. No, unfortunately. We're just getting to lunch when we were hit. Shame, too. I heard such good things about the food at Apollon. Adam started the engine and the vehicle shot ahead.
The ride to the airport was blissfully uneventful. Adam deftly and silently maneuvered the APC under the tarmac and into the bay of the waiting cargo plane, their latest project to date. Its engines were silent, save for the sound of a stiff wind, its hull severe and designed to bounce radar away from receiver, and wings tapered as whale's fins for the least turbulent passage in flight. All this while their guests remained motionless and silent. Well trained, James thought to himself. I wonder if Melinda will have more of a challenge with this crew. Landing on the Nar Tarmac, a more recent addition to the base, the plane taxied into the hill hangar, the facade of it closing behind. For a couple hundred feet above the hangar, it was solid rock, the tarmac itself melding into the on-campus vehicle test track. Few people at Nar knew this place existed. The bay doors opened and Adam drove the vehicle out of the plane and down one of the wide corridors to its garage inside the hill. Quite a stroke of genius to both carve out these caverns and build the larger vehicle track at the same time. The rock from within served as the base layer for the track, completely hiding the excavation. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey, Adam chimed as he parked. Look alive, you louts. Time for a little chat. Getting out and walking around the back of the APC, they opened the door to crunching. Damn it! The sound and sudden tensing forms of five of the men were unmistakable. Poison. They're all dead, the last hooded figure said calmly. The bodies will go into rigor quickly. A somewhat nasty side effect. Why aren't you dead then? Adam said as he lifted the man out of the vehicle. Quite simple, the man said, seemingly unfazed by the rough treatment. We were all given capsules. Mine clearly isn't immediately lethal. Thus I am to bear a message before my poison kills me. Here's an idea. Don't take it, Adam said. I took mine with everyone else, so it's already too late. You see, the man said, we were all dead anyway. Military men of old, cast out and deathly ill. We knew our fate. We did this for our families. They have been well compensated for our loss. Adam and James walked the man toward the base's holding cells as other personnel dealt with the bodies left in the APC. My message is this, the man persisted. The plans in motion against you have so far failed, so the tactic is being changed. Events being molded on a much larger scale. My employers see now that they cannot force or buy the technology from you, so they set in motion plans to get it another way. They tell me not even men can see how this will come about. You don't need to worry about more abductions. They will stop. The man fell silent as the trio continued their march toward the holding cells. How can we know the message you carry is reliable? James asked. A package of goods will arrive at Nar later today, the man said. All the stolen products and a list of personnel used in stealing them will be inside. That is to be my employer's olive branch. Better to take me to your infirmary. The poison begins its quick work. The man's stride faltered, his breathing turning to rasping and becoming shallow. All at once he fell forward mid-stride and began convulsing on the floor. Adam, hood! Adam tore the hood off the man, foam bubbling from his mouth with each beleaguered breath as he twitched. Nuts! Adam exclaimed, jumping back to his feet. Medical, 
James said, hitting the comm badge on his wrist. The system they had put in place automatically alerted the physician on call to who was calling and from where. Draper here. What can I do for you, James? Rick, I need a gurney and med team out here ASAP. Our latest prisoner just succumbed to a poison of some sort. The man had stopped twitching. He was still breathing, his eyes fixed. Adam stooped over him, feeling his pulse. Looking up at James, he shook his head. Weak and irregular. Damn it, Adam said, standing again and staring at the dying man in disgust, wiping his fingers on his jeans. So that's all we'll get, Adam murmured. Now what do we do? he asked James. We were actually making some progress in figuring this out. Well, if he was to be believed, then we won't have to worry about it much longer, James replied. But still, would have been nice to know who was behind it all, Adam replied. I won't argue with that, James said as he heard the electric whine of the medicart coming down the corridor. Guess we'll just have to rely on what Andre might have picked up. Yeah. Dirty business this is turning into, James, Adam said. No kidding, James agreed. Is this the one who was holding Melinda at gunpoint? Adam asked. Yeah, James replied flatly, running through the list of possible backers they had been building prior to this latest abduction. How does it make you feel seeing him there? Almost dead, Adam added. James paused before responding, searching his feelings. Sad, more than satisfied, really. Melinda wouldn't have been hurt, and this man will never see his family again. They had hoped by allowing this last abduction to occur that they would gain enough intel to bring their attackers into the open. The Medicart finally arrived, James and Adam releasing the man to the care of the base doctors for as long as he had left. In the meantime, they headed to the relocated Atmo HQ, now part of this underground complex. There, already pouring over footage and reports from this incident, were Melinda, Dondre, and Jessica. Making any headway? Adam asked Jessica as he sidled up next to her. Not much, she said with a smile, hip-bumping him away slightly. What about the prisoners? Unfortunately, James said, DOA. Self-administered poison. They must have had it in a hollow tooth cap or something. That sucks, came Dondre's reply. One survived? Melinda asked. James had felt that now familiar tug on his head. One had. Apparently his was a slow-acting poison, though. The medbay has him now. We're waiting to see... James stopped himself as Adam waved at him, focused on a message on the monitor table in front of him. Just did, James, Adam said. Never mind, then. James looked again at Melinda, saying, They're all dead. Andre, anything? He looked up from the chair, where he was hunched over another monitor table, fiercely typing in info. Not a lot, actually. They were hired third party. I got all their instructions, but those they got by Dropbox. Jessica was running the boxes used. Paid for in cash. Clerks can't remember details about the purchases, Jessica said. Or won't say, James finished for her. And let me guess, no cameras at the rented drop boxes? Spot on, Jessica said, squirming afterward as Adam tickled her ribs. Get a room, you two, huh? Melinda joked. Gladly, 
Adam replied, beginning to drag Jessica away by both arms. Hey, she said, freeing herself and smiling. So, James, what's our next play? He looked at Dandre, who was feeling the intent gaze, looked up and just shook his head. Wait for Meng to get back from his extraction mission. We've had a dead end for now. Bad choice of words, Adam said. He hadn't meant it that way, but Adam was right. Without live people to interrogate, they would have to go off on gathered evidence. That said, James was sure that they wouldn't find anything substantial. When Meng returned, the results were no better. All he saw was shadows, nothing identifiable. Even when the packages the now-dead abductor had described arrived, there were no fingerprints, no trace elements that could tie them to an originating location. The only possible clue was a note inside the smallest package that read, Truce for now. We'll work together soon enough. S-T-A-W-S That was chapter 19. Onward to chapter 20. The time between. Yes, yes, of course there was peace. Once we assumed global peacekeeping operations, countries were able to finally talk on equal terms. As an idea, it had been floating around for ages. Power brings peace. Generally, such a theory flowed from a victor's stance. But with us in place, no country could even field an army. After all, only another TDF-type force stood a chance against even a single squad of our kind. So, war just... Ceased? Just like that? I asked Eric. Not immediately, no. It did take some time. For nearly three years, border spats happened here and there. We always reacted quickly. With us guarding peace, countries had no choice but to talk things out. It opened borders and economies, creating possibilities never before imagined. Costa Rica, Switzerland, even Vatican City, countries who had for many years never fielded an offensive army, became paragons of the New World Order. Standing armies were disbanded, old military installations converted to civilian use. We absorbed various armed forces as active militias to help maintain order inside their own countries, but after we assumed the mantle of protection, no one's no one country's army engaged another until the time of the insurrection. Such an environment helped to foster new innovations in medicine and technology as even we couldn't have predicted. But as sure as the sun rises in the east on earth, so weeds crept into our carefully groomed garden. Despite peace and unparalleled cooperation, some governments yet used heavy-handed tactics to force their citizens into obedience. By that time, we'd become the lead agency in the Terran Defense Force. As such, on the bequest of the Terran government, we had to use diplomatic means to resolve governmental conflict. The diplomats, though, still wanted solid intel as a base from which to work. As such, we routinely sent observation teams in to collect data. People with skills similar to Andres or Melinda's usually comprise such teams, as they more easily blended into the normal fabric of the local society, while also gathering the most accurate information. 
So is that how Chaos managed his foothold? I asked. A smile shot across Eric's face. I know what you should be asking. But what are you really asking? <coughs> Was Chaos one of those leaders against whom you sent a surveillance team? I asked. If so, I assume that he somehow managed to turn them. So very close to the truth. No, Chaos was not a governmental leader, but rather a surveillance leader. The senior most, in fact, that we deployed to the region. He was in charge of all units operating in that area of America del Sur. They were all meant to gather intel and also to spread dissent. That area required his special oversight as it had fallen on especially hard times. Past governments in the region tended to concentrate wealth in few hands, making most citizens exceedingly poor. As well, the leaders of those countries were not the friendliest toward the Terran government. Early on, we embedded teams there to keep an eye on the situation as the situation became increasingly desperate. We saw an opportunity then, and so set Project Chaos in motion to leverage the plight of the poor against their governments. Once a sufficient level of unrest was met, the Terran government would ultimately be called in by those governments for help, meaning that we would have been sent in. With a pre-existing base of operations with the indigenous population, our jobs would have been very easy. The calming of the situation in, and installation of a new, friendlier government, both toward its people and the Terran government, would have been simpler. At least... That was the plan, Eric said. What happened? I asked. Eric's face contorted slightly before he answered. The long form of the story can wait for another time. Suffice it to say that as we were using chaos to mold the situation, he was using the situation to mold power for himself. We relied on his field reports to tell us what was going on in the region. We found out too late that he wasn't always forthcoming. That was chapter 20, The Time Between. Chapter 21, excerpt from a transmission attributed to chaos. None of you understand, do you? You just don't get what these people you put such boundless trust in are leading you towards. I have seen their future. They promise grandiose, idealized things. Things, things like peace for all. But at what cost? Rule of law by their decree? Their every whim and will as word of law? No, no. And that is why I have fought against the TDF for all peoples of the earth. My forces and I sought a new order, free from the chaos of party politics, free of the cumbersome bureaucracy that gave birth to these troubled times. We seek to usher in a new era of guided prosperity. Only a firm hand and strong constitution can lead a ship through the shakiest of weather. And yet, as we sought to rid the betrayers, more came to the fore. Daily, the very citizenry we sought to liberate took up arms against us. They, too, then became part of the problem and so had to be replaced. Even the wife or husband 
lending material support to the TDF, morale support struggles against the tide of the true revolution. And so these two must be replaced, must be stopped. For how can harmony be attained with such dissonance still extant? We killed many, yet many would also have died of hunger, starvation, and exposure, among other things, had we not intervened, not set right the ship of state. This Titanic was on a collision course, and so we cleansed the land of the heretics with righteous vengeance. And yet more of you daily resist our efforts to help. Know that our revolution will succeed no matter the cost. Join us or die, it is your choice. But know that no quarter will be given when the dust settles. In the end, all the unworthy shall be purged, so to make room for the new order. Forget the past as it is long dead and buried. Instead, look toward a glorious future wherein all strive toward the same goal. We together can build a new world. Let our voices harmonize and call together for a new and better tomorrow, for the new dawn inexorably comes. No more can the tide be held back with a broom than any force can oppose us. Even in defeat we shall try triumph and be vindicated by the hateful actions of our current regime. True believers will never give up the struggle until the true revolution is accomplished. Vive la revolution! Vive la resistance! That was chapter 21. Excerpt from a transmission attributed to chaos. Let's get one more chapter into this podcast. Chapter 22. Training. Of course we trained. And yes, we still became fatigued and tired. It just took much longer than for a normal person, Eric said to me. You had said, though, that with the nanites you could create Superman. Aren't those two statements contradictory, I asked? I see where you're coming from, but no. We could create Superman, but it's still much easier to enhance abilities that already exist in a person. To suddenly empower someone with the abilities of Superman is to rewrite their DNA. Effectively, you'd cease the existence of one being and create another. Besides... Creating Superman was, until the very end, unnecessary. No one could match the superhuman abilities your people already possessed, I commented. Exactly, Eric replied. And the more we improved the nanetic tech and trained, those augmentations increasingly developed on their own. To make zenith-like leaps instantly was a waste of time. Is that, though, what Chaos ended up doing to himself? I asked. Eric turned to gaze out his window, thinking. To some extent, yes. He saw the dominoes falling, the one line none of us, even he, wanted to cross. He finally did. Only his madness and lust for power survived his final change. That which was once human and good was buried in the process. He underwent eine Untergang, James said. Then how, in taking small steps toward the uh, Ubermansk, did you train your people? I asked. Somewhat the same as you might expect, Eric replied. We had rotations of workouts that included 
mixed martial arts, weightlifting, endurance training, swimming, and so forth and so on. A lot of that was due to Meng. He and his people were committed to being ready for any situation. But how, then, was your regiment different from, say, an ordinary athlete's regiment, I asked. Currently, the world record holder runs, what, three-minute miles, slightly over? We did four-minute, five-mile sprints. Our martial arts training progressed to the point that we moved faster than the human eye could see. We did have to work up to that level, but those were expected standards. What else? Eric asked me. Well, since you say that the nanites merely augmented human abilities already present, I assume such things as weapon training took place? I asked. Yes. There was one difference, though. Because of the type of organization we were building, Atmo, into, we included in the nanite base code advanced weaponry knowledge and basic martial arts training. The basic muscular motions were there, they just needed fine-tuning for each person. It was sort of like an installation time software patch that downloaded automatically. So in other words, once someone was bonded with the nanites, they, what, could pick up any odd projectile weapon and use it properly? I asked. Correct, Eric replied. It was a way to guarantee that even we lab rats could be useful in combat should the need arise. Which it did, I said. Clearly. And before you ask, once we started fighting Chaos's forces, we did up the included compendium of knowledge to include more basic skills, such as survival, advanced surgical skills, mechanical skills, and varied other things that we thought would prove useful. I'm going to grab some tea. Want anything? Eric rose and headed toward his kitchen. No, thanks. I need to get some thoughts down here while they're still fresh, I replied. Suit yourself. Earl Grey always helps me think, Eric replied from his kitchen. It's usually stiff whiskey for me, I mumbled, scrolling notes on the conversation we had just finished. Eric returned, cradling a mug in his hand, sniffing at the vapor wisps coming from it. Mm. Bergamot and citrus. He sipped at it as he sat down. You have a question ready? I glanced at my note tab to be sure it was still recording. I do. Based on your description of the nanites, I assume that they had only rudimentary data-storing capabilities. For the most part, Eric assented. Okay, so then... Could you include, how how could you include a, uh, a compendium of knowledge with them when they bonded? The nanites surely couldn't hold that much information all at once. Quite observant and correct, Eric replied. They were entirely guided by outside sources. After their initial symbiosis was achieved, they formed a redundant neural network in their host that also functioned as a transceiver. Once that net was built, it synchronized with our central computers and downloaded the additional necessary information and programming, storing it both in the artificial neural net as well as in adjoining host cells. From there, it was fed to the host's brain as required and further integrated during REM sleep. It was a fairly simple matter to use nanites to turn ordinary human body cells into additional memory storage, 
and because of how the body works and how cells divide, that I was constantly being backed up within the host. Um, makes some sense, I suppose, I replied. But you'd also said that the, uh, the basic muscular motions were there. How can that be when the host never would have done some of the actions before? Simple, replied Eric. When people talk about doing things by muscle memory, they don't literally mean muscle memory. More often, they do tasks by instinct due to copious repetitions that have formed a reactionary pattern in their brains. The nanites allow for the same type of muscular reaction in that certain actions are, during REM sleep, integrated into the host's brain. Such integration takes place within the first week of symbiosis. During that time, the mind, via its dream state, practices the new skills it has acquired via the nanetic download and so adapts them to the host's body and its known specifications. Wonderfully involved, yet simple process, really, Eric finished, leaning back and sipping again at his tea. Okay, but how did you get such information into a usable form? I mean, not even today do we fully understand how to decode the brain's signals. We can see the patterns from YMRI signals, but we haven't been able to translate them into the proper format for analysis or storage, I said. Well, once again, you have someone with the skills you seek. All you need to do with them is have them link their nanites to a mainframe and then either actually perform whatever task you're seeking or just have them describe it. Either way, they're accessing the same memory location in the brain. The mainframe then just parses the inbound information so it can be stored and retransmitted at a later date. It's the same process for surgery, combat skills, or really any ability. It's best to do so with someone who is an expert as their memory patterns are the most detailed. The nanites at that point simply pass along the patterns and the host's brain does the actual processing. The hiccup these days is that scientists are trying to translate from brain state to computer language to understand memory patterns. It strips away an important layer of information in the process. That's why if you use biological brain computers, it's all in the same format. Okay, I said glancing at my notes. So that explains the knowledge part of training your people, I guess. I was still having a bit of trouble processing what he had said, but figured it would make sense on a second listen. But uh, what about you physically? I mean... Did the nanites just do the work for the body? You know, exercise muscles until they were in top shape? It was actually several processes that went into making our kind faster and stronger, Eric replied, as well as more accurate. It began in the same place as the new knowledge did, the secondary neural net. You see, while the human nervous system does well in transmitting data, it has some pitfalls. For one, transmission speeds along neurons can vary depending on the quality of each individual neuron's myelination. Aside from that, as you may know, there is actually a gap between neurons across which chemicals travel to relay the information. The chemicals create a potential electrical difference between neurons, which is the transmission of data. In other words, you have a message, say, raise right arm, that's initiated in the brain. The message is routed down the brainstem, down the spinal column, and out along the path to your right arm, where the message tells specific muscle groups to contract. Along that way, that message is translated from an electrical impulse to a chemical signal, 
sent across the neural gap, captured by the neuron body of the next neuron, retranslated into an electrical impulse, and sent down the dendrite where the process is repeated until it reaches its target. In other words, there's plenty of room for slowdowns and transmission error. <coughs> the secondary neural net the nanites form allows for transmission of the original command to the target without translation or slowdown, as all the nanites involved in the neural net transmit messages in the form of electrical impulses at the same speed. There is, as with neurons, slight signal degradation due to potentiality resistance between nanitic links. This, however, still comes out to less than neurotransmission. End result? Bodily commands travel faster and so increase reaction times. The same is true of sensory input. It, likewise, is able to transmit its information faster along the neural net, leading, again, to faster processing and reaction times. We could simply get our limbs moving and reacting faster than ordinary humans. From there, achieving yet better results became a simple matter of training, as you may expect. While a white belt and black belt possess many of the same skills, the black belt knows how to use those skills more quickly and efficiently. Further yet, Nanites were able to aid muscle fibers, making them denser and thus more efficient in their operation as well as more resistant to injury. My head swam, not only from the general influx of information, but also from the sudden deja vu I was having of secondary school biology. It must have been apparent on my face, as Eric said, Need a minute to catch up again? The best I could manage was a nod as I bent over my note tab, scribbling furiously. Right now I felt like a kid taking a pop quiz. I was completely unprepared for what had been set in front of me and was frantically trying to grasp at anything in order to gain a foothold somewhere. Eric, this is just just an incredible amount of insight I managed, still scribbling notes as fast as my hand would write. You think that's a lot? You just wait until you come to understand the whole shebang, he replied. I'm not sure I could take any more right now, I said. I'm sure you couldn't, Eric said with a smile, again sipping at his tea. And that was chapter 22, training. So that's about an hour again. I hope that's okay that these uh, podcasts are getting a little longer. Thank you for sticking with me through the whole thing. Again, I hope that the voices I've been using help you uh, understand which character is speaking rather than just having to wait for me to say, Eric said, James said, blah, blah, blah. Let me know. Head over to my website. Connect with me on social media. You know, send me a message on Facebook. Uh, post to my wall there. Send me a tweet. Uh, send me a message on Twitter. Let me know what you think about this podcast. I would love to get your feedback no matter what it is. In the meantime, I would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with a friend. Let somebody else know about it. Check out my website for the first time if you haven't already. And with that, we'll see you back next week, I hope. Have a great week, a great weekend. See you next Tuesday.